welcome to Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Welcome, Black Light listeners. Welcome back for another episode. On this episode today, we'll be speaking about wrongful convictions and just in general how lawyers, public defenders don't, I'm not going to say don't, but how people are still being convicted with a large amount of time. So, yeah. Mr. Kyle? Yeah, I can't, um, well, yeah, we on a little bit of everything today. Uh, we're going to talk about the system. Uh, the system that evolves around each other to make it sustain the way it is today. So we can like start off like today with group homes, DSS, social service, and their jobs. So social service job is to a child a home due to the fact that they got neglect going on or they're being abused and they have to be separated from their mothers or the family, the primary family at that, biological. Now, some child protective services all don't have best interests of the child separated from the mother because the, your first priority will be is to keep the child in the family. Immediately, they want to separate the child from the family and then put the mother, father, or grandma, etc., on trial. And I don't mean by trial in court. I mean by trial as in investigating their well-being, their house, their style of living that they live in. Because not trying to tell somebody got a report of a foul play drugs being involved, or some type of neglect or abuse. Either coming from school or a neighbor. And not all cases are verified as that it's happening. You might have a jealous neighbor and just in the future and they call and now you got a case for nothing. Or you might got a teacher that a parent that got into it with and they call child protection service to be spiteful. And now you got a case that begins. Just from those flaws can cause a major invention in a child's life. Nobody is thinking about the child. So now you got to put the child into a placement. And when you find these placements, they are facilities. They're institutions. They're not homes. They are institutions with rules. Rules to limit on what they can do and what they can so that's why you hold the child against their will and punishing them, punishing them for something that they don't even know that they did. So as they stay in group homes long periods of time going through these rules, they start to develop a, a behavior of rebelliousness. Because I don't have instances in, in situations where I don't been in group homes as a child. And some of those group homes, staff members do not treat like a human being. They treat you as if you're some type of product or 
something that got something to do not as a family member. So you don't get that bond. So if you stay there six months to a year, you're going to develop a resistant, uh, resistant behavior towards adult figures. Because you're not going to know who to trust. Then if your mother doesn't never come visit you, then you're going to build a resentment to her. So now you have become habitual to that behavior. I've been a witness of that. Oh, I know about that. I've been seeing other kids go through that, especially in foster homes. Foster homes, I don't see the kids get abused. I'm sitting in corners, cold basement in a underwear with no other clothes on because that's the type of stuff that the woman and the man was born. Just being spiteful and want to cause harm to the child. And nobody's telling it. Or the child is too afraid to do that. It's all because they want to check. There are a lot of people don't do the homework on these people when it comes to hiring staff for an institutional facility or a behavioral program for these people. Well, how do you think that goes into public defenders? Like, how does that correlate together? Well, public defenders is like... Or paid attorneys. They're part of the system because a public defender works for the state. So many hours they get paid for these cases that they have to take very easily. Overlapping. You get overlapping cases, one after another, probably 100 cases, and they're not going to put their full time in. So when they do have to come to a case with the district attorney, and they come to a ground base, it's like a sacrificial game. So they're not going to be honest about whether their client is innocent or not, and being that they might know that the client is innocent, they still do the will of the district attorney and whatever they want done. And that's not fair. But you do have good lawyers that will go to bat for that client, even though they ain't with that. I'm not to make him go to prison for some stuff that I know he's not guilty of. But you do have some bad public defenders that don't kill. They sustain the system the way it is. So what you're saying is, or what I'm getting from hearing you speak, is that they're all part of a system that was not built to help anybody in a marginalized community and that you have some lawyers that are true advocates for their clients and then you have some that is just a job to them. Is that what you're saying? Like it's just a, a regular nine-to-five job, whatever. Right, right. Yeah, this, like, this was going on when you do surveys. Like, or, or personal experiences that you hear experience of being incarcerated, looking at mass incarceration. You got to think about mass incarceration the way it is. How do they keep getting returnees or how do they keep getting long-term sentences is due to people having public defenders and not able to afford uh, private attorneys. But all private attorneys ain't like that neither. You know, they got in this agenda too. So yeah, they are a big help when it comes to the city that they work for. And if the city is trying to sit here and develop a better city, I don't see how they are doing that. They their hands are not into that. They do have lawyers that have other nonprofits that are trying to help people to relinquish recidivism. So you, those are the good lawyers. Those are the nonprofits that are for injustice, you know, aka emancipate. That's what they do. You have those types. 
Yeah, shout out to Emancipate. The ones that, that don't care. But then you got the, the district attorneys too. But you know, the people, the people of the vote, the people that vote in the city have to get some type of influence to vote for who when it comes to district attorneys and judges and the center. So, but the district attorneys are never going to be for the people, though. That's they're never going to be for the people. That's the thing. I mean, I. Yeah, who? But who are you seeing today? Is it my personal aspect? I'm put. I don't mind putting out there, but for example, the NAACP used to be for the people, but today, that I see today, they're not for the people. I just can't see the, the things that they do. They do it commercially. Well, when like they I do it for TV on certain events, I just can't see them like democratically or republicanly. That's why I'm not in either party. I'm in between. I'm for equal rights, period, for anybody. I don't. I feel as though everybody should deserve fairness. It's in the city, state, whatever, federal, whatever. You should get a fair trial, or you should get treated fairly on any situation and condition. So if you're trying to advance your community, then what are they doing to advance their community, because that's what they are. They're a national association of advancement for color people. Right, but you know going back so, to the, the public, I mean, the district, not district, but the prosecutors, because they have nothing to do with the prosecutors. The prosecutors in itself are made to put people behind bars. They're never, I mean, you might have your supposedly progressive ones, and there are starting to be what you call progressive, but I still don't feel like they're ever going to be about, well, let's, you know... Let's not throw these people in prison for a long amount of time. Well, they should be optional. I mean, if I was a district attorney in my city, and I would look at the percentages of mass incarceration, okay, then I would look at alternatives or other programs that I could possibly put these people in or do before they get sentenced or while I'm sentenced, what I'm going to add on to their sentence just to give them this sort of time, but when you get out, you got to go do this. It's just, it's just a lot of alter make, uh, natives that they can do. It's on the table is there. I just seen bills just passed, like, reform act, like, they they, they could have been in the past, just to help out mass incarceration. Like, a lot of people people that have been locked up for 20, 30 years, they ain't even, there's not even, they ain't even done the crime just because they ain't had DNA testing back then. I mean, this is a whole bunch of stuff like going on right now that could be reevaluated, especially the mental health aspect in prison. That's part of this system. The system is designed for failure. It's not designed to correct no thinkers of no criminal that they label felons that they label. They put labels and tasks on a human being's behavior, actions. So you got to think about with the system is embellishing on the people. You know, if I really want to know and get down to the ground, I'm going to go to the mental of these people. I'm going to go to the background of these people. Uh, example, Jeffrey Dunman, he act out, but when they went to the roof to see what the what cause was, the, the man was getting abused, child abuse. He was getting molested. This was the root cause of him having these actions later on in life, becoming a serial killer. So it's always a root cause. Behaviors are learned. 
you get you're not born with these. Something has to happen for you to have this type of behavior develop and culture based. Mm-hmm. Well, it starts with the mental. And if you look at the system today, you look at the mental health aspect of it. If you look at the mental health aspect of it, the mental health ain't doing too much. Right. Not for the prisons, not on the street. I can look at my city right now from Greensboro, and we don't even have that many mental health services, if you want to be honest. Well, let's hold that thought real quick, and we'll be right back. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends, mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Welcome back. So, Welcome back to the show. I kind of want to talk about participatory defense. I think Durham County has one, but I really think that that needs to be in all counties. And what it is, is it was originated in California. And so in so many words, they feel like if, you know, we can march in the streets, for rights, then we can take that into the courtrooms and make sure that our folks in the courtrooms are receiving fair and just trials or plea deals. So this is the principles and practices is family and community strength can play a pivotal role in stopping and reducing incarceration for loved ones in a community. Families and communities can be even more powerful when taking the role of organizing and agent of change rather than service recipient. By working on individual cases, communities can build the movement of directly impacted people to hold the actors of the court accountable, make systematic change, and ultimately end mass incarceration. So that right there is the key to ending mass incarceration. Having a participatory defense, which is nothing but a bunch of organizers from the community Stepping in the courtroom, doing more than court watching, which I'm glad we have that. But now we need to organize as a community and go in and do just that. Hold the state actors of the court accountable. We have to take care of us. We can't leave it to the system, as you see. Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. I, I can agree with that, uh, along with the mental health aspect and that I can really see the change of mass incarceration. But they got to be willing. People got to be willing. Right? They can't be coached and you have to stand up for what you believe in. And it seems like now today, it's like everybody's thinking it's cursed. Like, I want to be a follower because they saying this and we should believe it, but you need to start investigating things on your own. Right. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, you need to be looking why your community like that. You don't need to be like, oh, they say it's like this, and you need to go off of it. You need to do your own research. You need to start getting involved with your city, the council, because the people that's on your council in your city is orchestrating the movements in your city, your budget, the, the spending, the cost of the people that's getting elected. They point no, they just where they point all these movies to. So you wonder why your city doing what it's doing? You need to go pay attention to the city council. You need to go pay attention to what's going on and what's what's this and what's that. Oh yeah, I do one hundred percent agree with what you're saying with that. I also do look at uh what programs. I'm not gonna say like it's a program but programs in general. Like, I mean, you need programs for children. You need programs for the children that are caught in between the system that at 17 years old, when they are either kicked out or emancipated, that they're able, they're not just on the street alone. Like, they have programs that can help them get a job, get somewhere to live, and be a productive citizen, not just, hey, figure it out on your own. Right. Well, I guess, like, I guess people can get a better view of, like, a legal aspect of, how the system does a little bit. So I know we do got a interview coming up from uh, a young man coming up soon after commercial break or whatever. He can explain his situation on a wrongful conviction or how he was wrongly convicted or suspected of a crime per se. And uh, people can get a reality check with that. But yeah, as far as me and my wife, I know my wife, she Oppression is not making, you shouldn't make money off oppression, period. Period. And it continues to be a money thing. Like, oppressing people's lives, taking away their lives is a thing. Like, it's it's sickening that you have billionaires off of people that are incarcerated for things they did not do. Don't get me wrong, you got people that have done some things, but it's a lot of people that did not commit none of these crimes that they are currently incarcerated for or not incarcerated anymore. Well, if you got people that's in a parse environment, a poor environment, like low-income neighborhoods and stuff like that, and they're struggling and dependent on the state, so like little small crimes that's trying to survive, them are behaviors of survival, not criminals. Right. They title them as criminal, but really they're survivors. Because if you stay in a poor neighborhood, where, where, where are you getting the money to live? If you can't get the assets or somebody to help you on a, a good job, well, today in the economy, today you can get a job now, but you can get that job and your rent is still doubled. 
Exactly. So it's really like you really ain't working. So, you know, with the inflation so high, like the jobs are still meaningless. You still got to find somewhere to live because homeowners today are losing their homes because their rent is double or their mortgage is double. You're renting the home. You thought you were going to be renting the home, but you can't afford it because your rent is outrageous. And that... So, yeah, you... Yeah, that's where instability comes yeah. from. Like stability means you have a roof over your head and you have a good paying job. That's what stability is. And when you take that from people, that's when they have to go and do things that they don't want to do, normally wouldn't do. Like nobody wants to go and rob other people or go and rob stores. Like nobody wants to do that. That's not something people wake up and say, oh, that's the first thing on my mind. No, when you got a baby sitting there crying, looking at you because they need to eat, that is what makes you go do what you got to do. And I've known plenty of people that's put in job applications after job application and didn't get the job because they don't have the experience or they don't have the right education or they're a certain color or a certain gender. So. No, it has not deterred crime. Prison has not deterred crime. Giving people 60 years has not deterred crime. It has actually made crime rise. Mm -hmm. Because you are taking resources out of communities. Like, it's it's everywhere. Like, when you see gentrification everywhere, like, now you have all these high-rise apartments that are over, some over $2,000. For what? Who can really afford that? And for, and why? Why is it not affordable for everybody? We're not talking about Section 8 or affordable income. We're talking about everything being affordable for everybody to be able to buy a house. Everything's based on your credit. Like, how is it based on your credit when the United States is in trillions of dollars of debt? Makes no sense. Yeah, we have plenty of time to have money to get out of debt. Right. Like the United States is in debt, but then you want to judge other people for being in debt and saying, oh, you can't buy a house because you don't have an 800 credit score. Makes no sense. Oh, no. I mean, I asked the people today, what do y'all think? It could be a solution to a system that's been over 100 years. It's still slave master to a slave. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's just nothing but a mobilization of a plantation, mobilized plantation. Y'all have to, we, we have to understand we have the power. Just like I just read the principles of the participatory defense. Like those principles applied to everything in life could like communities could be thriving like it's no other because the people are making sure the people are okay. Not government, but the right. people are making sure that the people are okay and that they have. So that means like, Community, the word community will be in, come in unity. Yes. So the community will have to work together. That is why you have unity yeah. in community. <laughs> yes. We have to come in unity in order to make a change. It's the only way, y'all. The only way. It's to band together. At all costs. At all no costs. Racism, no black. Yeah. Everybody's stuck on racism, man. <laughs> It's been past that. Been we past all human beings. There's only one race, so right. we don't got nothing to do with no black, white, Mexican thing. 
We all bleed one color at the end of the day. Yeah, that's old. That's, that's, everybody need to get up out of that. It's just one human race. It's just one race. It's not lady race. Those are nationalities. I didn't know. But that just goes to show you how, like, America has cultivated thinking. You know what I mean? Like, that we should depend on them and that what they say is right and what they say goes when they've always showed us the opposite, but we're still like, oh, the government cares. These people that's running for office care. Where? Right. Where? I can see, I can see. I've seen a lot of other states, though, they sort of pass laws that to help reduce recidivism, uh, like taking away the felony murder rule or mandatory minimum. It's definitely needed down here in North Carolina. You have a lot of states that have hired a group of prosecutors that go through cases to see if somebody has been wrongfully, wrongfully convicted, to see if there has been egregious errors done in their trial, to see if they deserve that plea deal and if it was 100 legit percent legit. Like, that is needed in North Carolina really bad. Like, that can end mass incarceration along with the participatory defense. Like, those two together can just end mass incarceration. And it could give us power over the court system. Like, we need to take back power over these state, because they're actors. They're state actors. Um, it's blacklight at emancipatenc.org. Thank y'all. But if you just want to share with us your story, you said you were wrongfully convicted. Okay. Uh, first of all, my name is uh, Javon Massey. You said Massey? Yeah, Massey. Okay. And uh, I've been incarcerated for going on uh, 16 years now. Okay. Do you mind telling us why? Uh, actually, I'm in here for a crime I didn't commit. I know a lot of people say that, but like, my story is very true. Okay, well, give us some little insight of why you say that you are wrongfully convicted. Okay, uh, on August 25th, 2007, there was a murder committed in Maryland, uh, North Carolina. Where? It's during the time of the Maryland. Okay. North Carolina. Mm-hmm. During the time of the uh, that the murder took place, I was actually in Concord, North Carolina, working on my car with a, uh, a neighborhood auto mechanic. Mm-hmm. And I was arrested. Well, I turned myself in two days later once I found out I had a murder warrant. I turned myself in two days later. And uh, during my interview, the detectives told me that it was a key piece of evidence that tied me to the crime scene. And he said that was my driver license was found right next to the dead man's the uh the witch, the dead man's body. Mm-hmm. By the people who was at by the people who was at the crime scene. He told me that uh someone stumbled across the body, found my driver license right next to the body and then when the police officer showed up, they handed my driver license to the uh police officer and told them that I was the one that committed the crime. So Tell us about the driver's license. Do you, or did you have your driver's license on you? Well, no, at the time, uh, usually when I drive, I keep my, uh, my 
driver license on the dashboard when, uh, when you can see the speedometer. Uh, the, the mm-hmm. I, used, I used to keep my uh, driver license here. And at the time I was working my car, I had some friends who came by and they were smoking uh, marijuana in the car. And I was smoking too, but I was outside the car. And thinking that's how my driver license got taken. I, I never even realized that my, my driver license was missing because I wasn't able to drive anyway. Right. So do you think that they took your license? And so do you think they were involved? Like, how? trying to figure out how your license well, got? Or do you just think they said well, yeah. that? Well, yeah. Uh, like, years, like, years after I was incarcerated, I started to hear stories about how uh, one of the guys was, it was a guy in the neighborhood, and he was uh, investigated for homicide that he was incarcerated for. And he wound up uh, beaten. But I heard this was the same dude that committed this murder. And, uh, and him and one of the somebody who I considered a close friend at the time was the one that committed the murder. Did they ever investigate the guy you're talking about? Was he ever considered a suspect or it was just you? No, just me. I, I told my lawyer... My lawyer told me that he had a, a private investigator who he was going to have a look into the matter, but my lawyer never did. Wow. So you feel my, like... My lawyer not... thing, yeah, my lawyer thing was, he was like, uh, he was like, the state have a very weak case. He said, uh, worst case scenario, you sit for about a year or two. He said, and you are, uh, and the state would probably be killed for offer for, uh, involuntary manslaughter, or manslaughter, and you get a sentence for five to seven. I could probably have you home within three years, two or three years. And what happened? So his, his thing, well, almost three, was about 30-some months later, he came to me and was like, well, the DA have a strong case, and now she want to proceed to trial. He was like, uh, he was like, hey, he was like, uh, we, we got a meeting with the DA. So they took me to the DA's office, to a conference room, and we had a meeting with the DA, and she offered me, uh, Boxcar sentence of a total of 36 years, which I rejected. And I told my lawyer I was innocent and I wanted to go to trial. So, after the, sometime after the meeting, I had the DA, he hung that privately and he told me basically that his exact words were, You're going to lose this case. He said, The DA's going to pull in an all white uh, jury on panel and she's going to get her conviction. And either you're going to get the death penalty or life in prison. He said, so you might as well let me uh, go to the DA with an offer of our own, which is for like 22 years. So did, when they convicted you, did they convict you? Did you have a prior record or that's just what they gave you? Because I know a lot of times you can get convicted or get a higher sentence based off prior charges. Well, this was the first felony I was ever convicted of. I had a bunch of misdemeanors, mostly uh, like traffic traffic violations and I had to break in the interim. So it really wasn't enough for you to get... So I guess my thing is how does... So was this a public defender or was this a paid attorney? Public defender. I just wonder how do you go from saying you know, they have a weak case to all of a sudden they have a strong case, they get the discovery, and... Yeah. Uh, it's funny you mention that. Speaking of part, like, part of discovery, uh, witnesses... That was around a crime scene. Uh, the victim's neighbor had gave police accounts that the uh, the person who they see around at 
of Ronald Carson at the time of the crime, they described him as 5 feet 3, 135 pounds with bushy hair. I'm 5 feet 8, and I was like 170-something pounds, and I have a low haircut. The guy who I told my lawyer about that uh, I heard that, you know, was probably the one involved with the crime, he's 5 feet 3, he had dreads, and he was 100 about about 140, 135 pounds. Right. So basically the only thing that tied you supposedly to the scene was an ID and then it was supposed to be a witness? It was found. I was, from the, from the, from the, from the report from my motion, it was a person who said that they found my driver license right next to the dead man's body. They said he lived in a trailer home. They said they found the body inside the trailer home and picked up my ID. The police officer pulled up in the driveway, and they had they had my driver license on them outside in the driveway, and that's where they gave my my driver license to the uh, to the officer and told them that they found the found inside into the dead man's body. They also told the officer that for 45 minutes they transported drugs and money from the crime scene to another location, so that uh the police officer, the police wouldn't find it when they arrived. Oh wow! And they also moved his. They also moved his body too. They took his. They took his money and jewelry off his off his person also. Did they move the body before the crime investigator got there, or the medical examiner, or was this after? Yeah. Before? Yes, they did. Yes, they so did. So they contaminated the scene. You're not supposed to move a body. That's crazy. We'll be right back, y'all, with the commercial. Okay, so we're ready to finish listening. Uh, you were telling me about the evidence, and you said that they had removed the body and they had removed his chains, so it was tampering with the crime, evidence crime. Yeah, but, uh, one of the uh, reports in my motion, one, uh, a couple witnesses said that they removed drugs and guns in the state from the crime scene. They made three trips in a time period of 45 minutes before they called uh, 911. The body was moved, and jewelry and money was taken off his person. Also, I have a report in my statement where the paramedic standing on the front porch with a detective, and the paramedic asked the detective was, he, was the victim deceased. And the, oh, the detective was like, yeah, I checked his pulse and I came in, and uh, I determined that he was deceased. So the paramedic was like, well, basically that was good enough for him. Medical personnel never checked on the victim to see would be alive or anything. Do you have co-defendants or is it just you? It was just me. It was people who they speculated and they said that I was involved in a crime with, but they never investigated these people or brought them forth on charges or anything. Wow. And then the people who the, the persons who they the persons who they were uh trying to connect me to the murder with when they interviewed these people. So did your lawyer tell you exactly what they had against you since at first it went from they have no evidence to they have a strong case?
was reported that I had touched several items in the house and drunk out of a soda can, and the soda can was left behind. And when the DNA was done to the uh, to the items, my DNA was never found on these items. So again, how did you can you just got convicted based off your supposed license being there? I wanted to go to trial because I always, I told my lawyer, like, I didn't do this. Like, and the thing is, like, I knew who did it, but, you know, I'm a very loyal person, and at the time, I put myself being loyal to, uh, to the street, you know, to certain people. And my lawyer, during the, uh, during the end of uh, a legal visit, he asked me, he was like, can you give the DA some names? And I said, I don't, I don't have any names to get a DA. That's the thing that they like to use. They feel like they have to convict somebody whether it's the right person or wrong person. That's basically what he told me. When I told him I was, you know, I stressed it. I really wanted to go to trial to prove my innocence. He told me the best, he told me my best defense to go to trial was to argue an imperfect defense. And uh, after he explained it to me, he told me that a self-defense expert would be meeting with me after that. try to do a self-defense if you wasn't even there? Like, how can you come up with a self-defense claim and you weren't even there? Am I correct? Like, where were you at? You were, you said you were in Charlotte, right? Or near Charlotte. And how... Which is Charlotte, basically. How far is Charlotte from had, where it happened? And the thing is, I had, like, several people that contacted my And how far is Concord from where it happened? Do you know? No, I can't tell you because I like I never been to uh to 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 a city called Midland before. I never been there. I couldn't tell you where it was at. It's you said it's Midland or Leland, Midland, North Carolina. So they're saying you were in a total... Let me see if I can look that up to see how far that is from Concord. That's So you basically had a wrong witness identification, right? Misidentification of a witness. And he couldn't come up with an argument of to, as to why your license was there? Who, my attorney? Mm-hmm. I mean, like... I try to explain to him like the best, like I told him, I, said, I don't know how I got there. You know, uh, the only thing I could think of, like at the time, I was working my car, I had two friends stop by, and you know, we smoking marijuana. I was outside, you know, helping a mechanic with the, with the, with the uh, put the parts on. But at the same time, I'm still smoking marijuana with my two friends that were sitting in the car. So I'm assuming that's like how my driver license got out of the car. So Midland is 20 minutes from Concord. It's down 601. 
I wouldn't know where it's, I've never been there. That's the honest to God's truth. I've never been there. Did you have, did they extract cell phone data? Did you have a cell phone at that time? Cell phone? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. Mm. So what are you hoping to get? Like, now that you've been, how long have you said you've done? Uh, a little over 15 years, going 16. So for people that's listening out there, you never know who's listening, what, what is your call to action or plea? Uh, to, I wish it was, like, something more on slate to, to, like, help guide in my situation at the time. Like, I didn't know nothing about the law, personal economic the law. I've never been in trouble, in real serious trouble. Hurt, uh, you know, first degree murder, that was something new to me. The worst trouble I've ever been in was probably, like, breaking and entering. And it's just, you know, not knowing, not knowing the legal talk of the lawyers, not knowing the law or... So what you're saying is, is what is what I'm hearing, that you think it should be some type of defense outside of your normal public defender or paid attorney, like, because there are some states that have, um, I forgot the, the legal name for it, but they have like their own defense that kind of steps in behind attorneys or public defenders to make sure that things are being done right. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, because had I known a lot of things, I still, like, my I, my lawyer really pressured me into going, into taking, into taking a plea for a second-degree murder, and even even at my plea hearing, he was basically telling the judge, like, if you, if, if you, if you can read my plea transcript, he was basically telling the judge, like, there was a lot of things wrong with my case. Uh, I had a trial date set for April fifth, two thousand ten. And during and during that and during that day in court, my lawyer told the judge that he was gonna file a motion for thirty two errors of assignment. And I asked him what that meant. And he told me there was thirty two major errors in my case. And after that it's just like it's like everything changed. Right. Like he 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 came to me and told me the the DA had a slam dunk case if I uh if I went to trial, I was going to definitely lose, and that I would keep the life, uh, the death penalty, or life in prison. And it was just mind-boggling to me how he could just like how everything was changed so fast. Right, and that happens for a lot. You're, you're not the only one that has dealt with that. That happens for a lot of people, and so I think it is important that there is a extra layer of security for people that are going to court. Um, I'm not really sure. You know, I'm not going to speak on a lawyer's standpoint because I don't know why. Um, it's not more advocacy, but I do think that that is called for, that we do need something like that. But I appreciate you sharing your story, and we will definitely let our Black Light listeners listen, and hopefully, you know, we can form something that, you know, can give extra security for people so that they're not being wrongfully convicted or having you know, court errors because of misidentification and other things. You know, we suppose, like, we have a, uh, I don't don't know if you're familiar with North Carolina Prison Legal Services. Yeah, I am. (laughs) And that's what I thought they was for. A couple times I contacted uh, Innocent Quarantine Commission in uh, Raleigh, and they they took, they actually took my case and told me they were investigating for me. And every time they took it, North Carolina Prison Legal Services would, Contact them and told them that they see you 
sentencing areas in my case, and they would represent me to get back to court. And then they would hold my case for a year, so almost three years at a time. And then, just to drop it and something that they made a mistake, they didn't see the sentencing areas. But every time I contacted North Carolina Inquiry, Thank you for putting that out there as well. Might be some other people going through yeah, the same I, thing. And I thank you for the work you are doing. Hopefully God's will and take attraction and sometime in the future, you know, you'll be able to help a lot more other people. Well, that's my goal. That is the reason why I'm doing this show, to hopefully bring more light and help more people who are wrongfully convicted in North Carolina. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Take care. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care.